0: Welcome to the Active Training Team podcast, where we talk about sharing ideas, adding value, and increasing engagement in safety leadership. My name is Adam Christopher, and I'm a director at Active Training Team. ATT used drama to explore behavior in the world of safety, health, and wellbeing. I hope you enjoyed our first episode, which was all about some of the challenges facing the rapidly expanding renewable energy sector. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do check it out. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or at activetrainingteam.co.uk. For this episode, I want to focus on some of the things that make road users feel vulnerable. And for many people, the biggest and heaviest user of the road is what makes people feel vulnerable. And that's the HGV. Now, vulnerable road users such as pedestrians and cyclists and motorcyclists share the roads with lorries, HGV lorries every day. And we've all seen the news stories and heard the radio bulletins about what happens when things go wrong. And the effects can be catastrophic for all concerned. And it's a subject close to att's heart and has been the focus of a huge piece of work for us and there's more to come on that later but let's kick off in central london on an average weekday morning to find out just how vulnerable pedestrians and cyclists feel i am at vauxhall roundabout it's about eight o'clock friday morning and we are on an island where we are surrounded by either people on the super cycle highway cyclist after cyclist after cyclist is coming through but we're surrounded by traffic ranging from motorbikes to cars vans flatbed lorries tipper trucks it really is buses a hive of activity and a huge number of pedestrians they're like ants constantly crossing the road waiting for the lights waiting for the green flashing man to allow them to cross some have been actually quite daring and racing across the road really is an interesting case study in in what constitutes and what makes someone a vulnerable road user excuse me we're doing a podcast on vulnerable road users how vulnerable do you feel
1: Ah. Uh- I mean it, there's lots of bike lanes so it actually feels okay um, but on a lot of the roads where like the bike lanes don't exist tra- you get forced too close to the traffic um, it can feel quite like uh, they could hit you at any point I think the bikes are quite scary around here coming down here is quite, quite fast What makes them scary? Um, they don't stop like cars, they just keep going and even the cr- there's a crossing there where pedestrians do have right of way we don't have right of way, we just have to wait until there's a gap.
0: Okay, yeah. so actually the cyclists and the speed, they go? Yeah,
1: yeah, really quite fast and they just don't stop the pedestrians, even when they're supposed to.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs> is
1: that right?
0: How vulnerable do you feel?
2: Not particularly, to be fair. Why is that? Well, the infrastructure's pretty good. The bus lane, cycle lane's pretty solid. Everyone looks out for each other. Okay, yeah, some bad drivers, but some of the cyclists are worse than the drivers, so... What makes a cyclist bad? They don't stop at red lights. They don't wear helmets. They don't use lights properly. They're more dangerous than the cars. What do you think to
0: the pedestrians?
2: I think uh, the invention of headphones is a bad idea because they're all in here and not up here. So the scars I've got came from pedestrians.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay. But it happens,
2: you know. We're all just getting to work, right? So you just look where you're going. Thank you very no much. No worries.
0: Just a couple of highlights there, but I spoke to quite a lot of cyclists and pedestrians at that junction on Vauxhall, and on the whole, People said to me that they felt pretty safe, which is kind of surprising based on what I witnessed. I mean, there were cyclists who weren't wearing any sort of protection. They weren't wearing any high-vis. They had headphones on. You had no helmets in sight. You had no gloves. Uh, it, It seemed that they were not protecting themselves if something did happen. It just seemed extraordinary some of the risks that these people were were willing to take. And then there's the pedestrians willing to dart across a road that you can see the traffic racing towards them and it's that urgency that they have to get across. Some of these people are wearing headphones as well. It makes you wonder if they don't feel vulnerable, is it because they feel invincible? It won't happen to them. So active training team have been commissioned by the Tideway Project, the five billion pound super sewer in London to create an HGV program that addresses behavior. It's an accredited CPC course, seven hour day. And so we've worked with a lot of drivers. We've worked with a lot of industry experts in designing this program. And we've learned a huge amount about what the challenges, the pressures and the risks are for all the people involved in this very difficult job. Now, I've realized that a lot of these drivers don't really seem to have a voice. They aren't invited into the conversation or they don't feel invited into the conversation about vulnerable road users. And that's what I want to explore today to give you a sense of how it's possible to create a culture change in road safety. So I traveled out to Essex to meet Steve Barkley, managing Director of Wharton Freight Services, who told me about his main challenge.
3: The customers' challenges are they want things done there nah, and it's there nah, straight away. To get from here to central London, and this is no exaggeration, it's for approximately 20, 22 miles and that can take from a minimum hour and a half to three hours. And everything is time consumed because there's bookings on sites, there's no room. So, every delivery we do is critical.
0: So, you can start to see the pressure on Steve there. What about the drivers?
3: They, they've got to try and watch every single thing that's going around them. And we try hard with cameras, extra mirrors, windows in the door, in the passenger door, sensors. He's constantly looking, constantly, and um, we're trying every way we can, but you, you're, still, you're still vulnerable. You, you're, not, you're not protected at all times, and uh, it needs looking at. I haven't got a solution. I wish I had a solution, but we are severely overpopulated and we've not done nothing with roads.
0: I asked Barry, one of Steve's drivers at Wharton Freight Services, how he felt about driving in the city.
3: Cyclists, pedestrians need to see what we can see. That's the biggest thing. We're told or well, made to go out on cycles so we see what they see, but they don't see what we can't see.
0: How difficult is it being a, a driver difficult.
3: of one of these? Very difficult. I wouldn't do it again. If I could do something else, I wouldn't do it again. Absolutely not. So if you if you could do something else, you wouldn't be a driver. If I could be a plumber or a plaster or something, I'd go and do it because this is this is not a good job because we're so strict on us it's just it's not worth it because every day you go out you're risking your driving license
0: Barry they're acutely aware of the risks involved in doing his job and there are so many risk factors involved that he has little or no control over and that's principally how others around him behave and in that sense does that make Barry and other drivers vulnerable here's Jed he's a cycle courier What makes it enjoyable?
2: Being outside. Being outside's wonderful. Not having to deal with people is great and bad. You know, it can can get, like... It can feel quite spectral at times. Like, I I just get jobs through an app. I go to a place, I take it, and I deliver it to somewhere else. So that can be quite a strange part of the job, which can be nice a lot of the time if you're you're in quite a weird headspace or or, or you're tired or you just fancy just, just listening to music or just being in your own head. And that's kind of wonderful because... Um, you're kind of your own boss in that respect so I really enjoy that
0: and you, and you listen to music so it's, it's, you can
2: be in your own world exactly yeah exactly that yeah so I listen to it I, uh, I go through periods of listening and not listening while I'm cycling at the moment I'm very much in, in a period of that because I had sort of six months where, where I, I was like no I'm not going to do that I don't, I, I'm not sure it's right and then I started doing it again and my, my day is just so much better so you just have earphones in? I do I have earphones in usually just one okay. I like to keep one one free definitely what
0: do you want to keep one free for?
2: Cars, car sound, stuff like that. People. I mean, generally, I can hear it anyway. But I would, I would feel so stupid if uh, if anything did happen to me because I didn't hear it. You know,
0: one headphone versus two headphones, is that going to make that much difference to keeping Jed safe? In many respects. Jed is at the bottom of the food chain regarding commercial road use and yet he's exposed to some of the biggest risks and dangers and probably paid the least. I wonder what more Jed can do to keep himself safe. But it's not about us and them. Very few road users fall into one single category. Many of us are pedestrians, drivers, cyclists, And we behave differently depending on our mode of transport. I went out on a run with Chris, and like many HGV drivers, he's also a cyclist, and he drew on his experiences with empathy.
4: I I like to ride,
3: but even I get an older cyclist in London, but when I'm in London, I'm probably just as bad as (laughs) him. In a truck, I'm so patient. I, I can be quite happy... You know, if they want to, if they're in a rush, then you know I don't want to get in the way. We don't want to injure them. We don't want to have the problems of it. But like when you get on a bike in London and stuff, you don't want to be. The whole point of being on a bike is getting across town as quick as you can and not be sitting in traffic. So everyone's sicking and sagging, and it's just, it's just London life.
0: <laughs> so what you what you said to me just before was, <clears throat> when you're on a bike in London, yeah, you're yeah, as yeah. bad as a cyclist. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And I think everyone would be.
0: I'd like to introduce you to one more driver at Wharton Freight Services. His name is Rob. Rob is a very experienced HGV driver. His lorry was obviously his pride and joy, absolutely spotless. It smelt immaculate. And I want to play you this clip because Rob gives us a perspective here that you might not consider as you're facing down the traffic on your cycle home from work.
4: I love this truck. This truck is brilliant. Uh, it's powerful. It looks clean. It's just, it's just my my life. Do you know what I mean? I like driving, so this is yeah, this is my pinnacle, my my working day.
0: So a driver told me that he realised at some point in his driving career that what he was driving was a a blunt weapon.
4: It is, it is a blunt weapon, and you know I don't think people realise until you see a major accident with HGVs how bad it can be. And the thing is, it hasn't even got to be a major accident. You can have a slight bump and kill someone in one of these. So I'm I'm particularly aware of that. I've seen accidents. I've known drivers that have killed people and I've seen how it affected them. You know, I've got a friend who who killed someone in London and he's never been the same since. He still drives, but he's never been the same. Certain sounds and certain things he can't have on because it reminds him of an accident. So I'm fully aware of what one of these can do. And so I'm more of a, what you call, defensive driver. So instead of, you know driving too close or anything like that I'm the one that will back off because I'd rather get home and see my wife and kids
0: because you know the impact that
4: the impact that one of these can have yeah on you on me
0: as as well as the person that might get physically hurt of
4: course it is it's not just the it's not just the two people in an accident it's the branches that come off of that accident you kill someone it's not just your life it's their life their family's life their children's lives my children's life I go to prison for it that's why I say it's all part of the planning so you've got to plan your day because these things do happen. You know, you can't avoid some accidents, some accidents. An accident's always going to happen because there's good drivers and there's bad drivers.
0: Thanks to Rob for being so open and honest with us there and giving us a clearer idea of what's going through his mind and what the possible ramifications are for him and for other drivers when they get it wrong and they're involved in a serious incident. This brings me on to a conversation that I had recently with Kate Cairns. Kate has spent two decades working in construction as a civil engineer and she has a whole host of accolades and achievements to her name, one of which is that she is the founder of the See Me, Save Me campaign. Now, some of Kate's story is fairly hard-hitting, but she has played a critical role in improving HGV safety. Here's Kate talking to me.
1: In 2012, I think it was the end of 2012, there was a spate of deaths in London And Peter Hendy, who's a traffic commissioner at the time, wrote to all the heads of construction firms and said, what are we going to do about this? Um, TFL commissioned a report to look into the propensity of construction vehicles in these deaths. And it transpires, which I knew already from anecdotal evidence in my experience, that tipper lorries, skip lorries and cement mixers were grossly disproportionate in cyclist deaths. So HEVs involved 50% of cyclist deaths in London, but make up only 4% of traffic. And wow. that's because of the massive blind spots that we have all around the cabs.
0: Okay, so the, so the kit that they're driving, physically, the size yeah, of, of it. yeah,
1: Physically. So in 2010, I went to Strasbourg with my MEP to try and or to, to call for mandatory cameras and sensors and lorries. We had a written declaration, 81, which was um, supported by more than half of the MEPs, only 10% of written declarations get through. So that was a major, major success. But then again, I went in 2013 with TfL to call for change in CAM designs for an amendment to Directive 9653, which was successful. But then they, the manufacturers pushed that back for about seven years. They said, well, we, we need time to change our designs. And anyway, we're the experts in HTV design. What do you know about it? Leave it to us. So that is now coming through. So we've got a change in um, cab design. We've got the clock standard, which looks at driver training. It looks at cab design and it looks at operations. It was seen initially as a London issue, but it's now being rolled out across the UK. and, And in fact, as many people are killed on rural roads as London roads, people think it's a cyclist issue, but it's a pedestrian issue as well. And it's happening, you know, all over the all over the country So when you say, so we've made massive strides in the last 10 years. However, there are still 466 people on average killed or seriously injured by HCVs across the UK.
0: Awful. Okay.
1: So there have been hundreds of people killed by HCVs since my sister. So in one way, I think I've made a massive change and in another way I feel like a failure because every time I see a death in the news I know what that family's going through
0: Your sister was killed tell us about that Kate if you don't mind
1: Ailey was 30 years old she was a fit, strong and experienced cyclist she was cycling to work through Notting Hill Gate and she was struck from behind by a 32 ton fully laden tipper lorry And she was dragged and crushed and laid under the wheels, pinned by her pelvis. She was fully conscious and she asked passers-by, please help me, please help me. And then two hours later she was dead.
0: Okay. What's been the impact of Ailey's death on your family?
1: Some say that when a tragedy happens, um, you know, families come together and they're stronger. But it's very difficult because I think we all reacted very differently. And I've turned my grief and pain into to try and be a cause for change and try and use that in a positive way to make widespread change so that others don't have to experience what she did and what we have done as a family.
0: So the ripple effect is is huge because you've lost a member of your family but the manner in which you lost that person plays a big part in that grief and that pain.
1: Because it's so shocking. It's so shocking and it's not like that they're ill or there's time to put their affairs in order. There's no time to say goodbye. There's no time to say sorry there's no time to say I love you just one day they're just gone and they're never going to come back and that's a very bizarre and disturbing feeling but you talk about ripple effects I went to um being an engineer I wanted to know exactly what had happened knowing she was an experienced cyclist I wanted to know what had gone wrong and the police investigation was incompetent at best and I went and did a a witness appeal on the streets and a woman approached me with two little girls because it happened at four minutes to nine on a Thursday morning in Notting Hill Gate, so it was full of people. And um, she was holding hands of these two little girls and they were looking up at me. They'd said to her, um, is that the lady that was lying on the road? She told them yes, that she was all right and she, she'd woken up and she was fine. But they'd been there, she was lying on the road, there was blood everywhere and she told me that they were traumatized they had nightmares they had to go to the doctors they had to get counseling this is just two little girls that have been walking by that day who know that won't feature on any system or record or log anywhere how many other people you know someone contacted me she was on a double decker bus she'd driven by and seen it you know there must be scores, if not hundreds of people affected by what happened in that moment that we we have no comprehension about how far and how wide the ripples go
0: actually tell me a little bit about about the driver because i'm interested how a driver might feel who's on the who's responsible for somebody's death
1: well because the police investigation was so poor um they didn't check his eyesight until i asked them to check his eyesight And they just weren't interested. They said, "Mm, "Do you know, I don't think we've checked his eyes. I said, well, do you think you could check his eyes, please? And then they waited. That was three months in. I just assumed they had. And then they waited another three months to check his eyes. And he dramatically failed his eyesight test. He couldn't even see the number plate for, uh, you know, driver for a car, which is less stringent than a truck. But because they waited six months his lawyer argued that his eyesight had been fine on the day and it had deteriorated massively in six months. And so there's no charge The only charge he'd brought against the driver was driving with uncorrected defective vision, because I'd asked about that. If I hadn't asked, probably there would be no charge at all. And he was um, given three points and a £250 fine. And this is a double scandal. And this is what's even, you know, bereaved people say is even as hurtful as the death the lack of action afterwards and that nobody's listening and nobody wants to wants to investigate that person's that loved one's life matters so little that nobody's going to do anything to stop it happening again and being in the construction industry i was very familiar with the health and safety executive riddle method statements risk assessments you know, we have all of that on site. We have proper full investigation when there's a death on site. We have lessons learned. We have the site shut down until we knew what happened. And that just didn't happen, you know, that, that there is no investigatory body that is interested in doing that. Police are interested in clearing the road and, you know, more often than not, there is not enough evidence in their eyes to bring a charge, which is what they're interested in. But the driver... I feel totally vindicated in my criticism of the justice system because the driver, 15 months later, went on to run down and kill a pedestrian. On
0: Was he wearing glasses?
1: He was not wearing his glasses.
0: What happened to that driver?
1: He went to jail.
0: A very powerful and moving account there from Kate Cairns. I had a fascinating conversation with Kate about her campaigning and advocacy in the aftermath of her sister Ailey's death... If you'd like to hear more about her story, we've released a full-length interview with Kate alongside this episode. I'd urge you to have a listen and to check out Kate's See Me, Save Me initiative. I'm Adam Christopher and you're listening to the Active Training Team podcast and we're hearing from a variety of voices that represents a, a range of what may be classed as the vulnerable road user. At this point in the podcast, I want to get into more detail about the work that we at ATT are doing around logistics, drivers and road safety. So Epic Logistics uses Active Training Team's signature blend of film, live drama and facilitated discussion with communication skills, workshops, procedural sessions where we draw on industry experts to help us put best practice in the minds of the participants. Let's listen to one of the key scenes from the day, where two of our characters, Kevin and Griff, are faced with a situation that many of our participants can identify with.
3: Thanks, mate. Hey, are we alright? Not really. No. Uh, what's up? You driving this one? That's right. Since when? Since now. Where's the 60, place? In the workshop. Gearbox? Oh, Gearbox, yeah, yeah. Look, you're going to have to hold fire, I'm afraid. Sorry, Phil, no can do. We're supposed to be in Lambeth at 3 o'clock, and totally get a spurt on. Who by?
0: Danny and the gaffer, downs have just been on the phone to him now.
3: Yeah,
4: I know.
0: Yeah, and we've got to get down to more Wharf and shift some muck away by close of play. Yeah, I
4: know that too, but this vehicle's not LWC compliant.
1: But
3: that's what I said to Dan, but he said to meet you here, and you'd sort something out. That camera is not right. Yeah, I know, and I'm not a bloody miracle worker. Right,
0: what's the worst that can happen? I'll go down to the site, the traffic marshal checks me
5: over, and he sends me back here.
3: I don't know about you, but I for one want to get this job over with as quickly as possible. I'll jump in the 57.
1: are coming in of a serious road traffic collision this afternoon at the junction of Flint Street and Albany Avenue in the City of London, involving a male cyclist in his 20s and a heavy goods vehicle. The area has been cordoned off while the police secure the scene and start their investigation.
0: So a willingness to get the job done there having a devastating effect. A young cyclist, Michael Clark, a new dad, killed due to a culmination of a series of bad decisions created by unnecessary pressure. So the cyclist in our story, Michael Clark, when he's killed by this 32-ton tipper on a London street, he has a 10-day-old baby daughter. And what we've done on Epic Logistics is we've built the flat of Michael Clark. We're asking participants to suspend their disbelief. And when they walk into the flat, that's kind of easily done. They get to meet this actress playing the daughter and they can't help but be touched by what they see and what they feel and what they hear. What she has to say. Here's Joseph, a driver from Newcastle working on the Tideway project. I grabbed a few quiet moments with him just after lunch to see how he felt after he met Alice, the daughter of our dead cyclist Michael Clark.
5: Oh, I was devastated. Um... I've got a little seven seven month old baby at home, and it just, it just hit me. It really hit me. I couldn't look at her. I'm filling up now thinking about it. So it's just, it really hits home, you know. Just makes you realise how real it is, you know. It it just really hits you where it hurts, sort of thing. You know, I don't know.
0: What will you take
5: home? Do you think from today? What what what's this going to give you? I'll make sure that I do my job properly I do it right. If I've got to do it twice I'll do it twice. I'll check everything twice and I'll just think more about my family life at home and everybody else's family I suppose. Do you know what I think um I don't know I'm finding this very air. Uh, I think I might actually go home and cry. God, it is it does kill you, It does. It's just oh. It's gotta it's gotta affect the driver for life. He's never gonna get over the fact that he's like killed or hurt somebody, is he? It's gonna be in the back of your mind constantly. I don't know whether I would be able to drive again if i if it had ever happened to me, I just don't think I'd be able to drive again. Like I say, wagon drivers have got this persona of you know they're rough and ready they're not bad they've got no you know they'll fight anybody take anybody on but we're not we're not all like that when it comes to things like this i'm a big softy it's just the way it is so i
0: think something that's clear for me as a result of this episode is that how we behave has a consequence We need to take responsibility for our own behavior and be aware that that can impact on other people. So whether we are a pedestrian, whether we're a cyclist, we ride a motorbike, we drive a car or a van, or we are the drivers of an HGV truck, a 32-tonne lorry, we have a responsibility and we cannot switch off and become complacent. I'd like to think that this episode has challenged some of our assumptions about what it means to be a vulnerable road user. And I'd like to thank Steve Barclay and his team of drivers at Wharton Freight Services, or the cyclists and pedestrians that spoke to me, the Epic Logistics participants for sharing their thoughts, and to Kate Cairns. Please do listen to the partner episode where Kate talks in more depth about her experiences and all the fantastic work that she's doing in making roads safer thank you very much for listening my name is adam christopher my producer is freya hellyer thank you freya if you'd like to find out more about us visit our website activetrainingteam.co.uk